Turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter number 7. Luke chapter number 7. Uh, me and my wife were talking the other day, and we were speaking about uh, an individual that we both know, and just talking about their life and their testimony and, and what God had done in their life, and talking about their unique character. And by that, I don't mean that they're a strange individual, but I mean they have character of a unique quality. There's somebody that's kind, and there's somebody that just always... Uh, looking to serve others and, and just has a great spirit in the Lord. And uh, we were talking about this individual, and my wife, in, in her wisdom, she's a lot smarter than me, she said, you know what makes that person different? And I said, what is that? And she said, that person knows what God saved them out of. That person knows how big of a deal it was that God saved them and changed their life and transformed them, and they've never forgot just what a big thing it was when God redeemed their soul. And man, I'll tell you, that, that just began to marinate in my soul. I began to think about that thought, and I began to think about this passage in Luke chapter number 7, and uh, God began to do some things in my heart. Can I just say this to my eternal shame? Sometimes me and you, we forget what a big deal it was that God saved. We just do. We get used to it. We get over it. And we forget what a big deal it was that God saved us, what He saved us from, uh, what he saved us to. Somebody say amen to that. I mean, we forget just what he did when he saved our soul. In Luke chapter number 7, we have a picture of a woman who never forgot that, and it shows in her life. Luke chapter number 7. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 36. Luke chapter 7, verse number 36. The Word of God says, And one of the Pharisees desired him, desired Jesus, that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping, began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, this man, that tells you what he thinks of the Lord, doesn't it? This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil, thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be here. Thank you for the way you've blessed our little church here, that you've grown it, Lord, and you've used it. And Lord, in spite of who we are, in spite of all that we do, in spite of all that we lack, you still continue to minister the Word of God to us, to work in our hearts and in our minds. And I pray that this morning that would happen again, that you would take your Word, wield it deftly in our hearts. I pray that the Holy Ghost would do that office work that only He can do. 
of smiting our spirit, of convicting our lives, Lord, of comforting us and encouraging us, building us up in the most holy faith. And Lord, we'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Now, Lord, if there's one amongst us and in a group this size, it'd be no surprise to find out that there's one that does not know you. They might have had religion, Lord. They might have had, uh, you know, self-reformation, but they've never been born again. They've never uh, put their faith in you. They've never been indwelt by the Holy Ghost, Lord. They've never trusted in you for salvation. I pray that today would be that day, that they'd not leave here today, uh, else they make that decision to put their faith in Christ and to be eternally forgiven. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you have done and will do. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. When we approach Luke chapter number 7, there are three thoughts that immediately occur to me about this passage. When I think of this scene unfolding in this Pharisee's house, and you imagine this woman who, by the way, was not invited where she was, but she knew that's where Jesus was. Let me say this. When we have a love for Jesus, we'll get where he's at, whether we're invited or not. Amen? When we know that's where He is, we're going to want to be close to Him no matter what it takes in our life. And shame and and embarrassment will fly through the window. We'll crave just to be in His presence. It won't be about what people think about us. It won't be about people's opinion about us. All it'll be about is getting where He is at. And that's how this woman was. She had a desire to go and show her gratitude to the Savior for God forgiving her of her sins. I may not get to it in the preaching, so let me just mention a word very quickly about verse 47, lest you misunderstand what's taking place here. When the Lord says her sins, which are many, are forgiven, uh, for she loved much, He's not saying that her loving is the premise of her forgiveness. He's saying that her loving is the proof of her forgiveness. He's not saying, well, she loved me, so I guess that I'll forgive her because the Bible says that God loved us, or we love Him because He first loved us. That He loved us when there was nothing lovely or lovable about us. That when we were enemies of God, He reconciled us unto Himself by His Son. So it's not as though the Savior is saying, well, she proved that she loved me, so now I'll forgive her. He's saying, hey, I can tell she's forgiven by the degree to which she loves me. And so when I read this scene and when I imagine it in my mind of this woman unbidden, uninvited to this uh, dinner party that shows up, that knocks on the door, that walks in with this alabaster box in tow and just immediately begins worshiping the Lord. There are three thoughts that strike me. Number one, I can't help but notice that it is a strange scene. It is a scene that is out of keeping with social order. It is not something that we would think is appropriate. It is something that society would look at, and we can be awful judgmental about Simon here, but how would you feel if somebody showed up unbidden to your house and started to behave in this way, and and you're not aware of what's transpiring? It is something that is considered out of vogue and not appropriate in society. Can I tell you this? When you love the Lord, it's going to keep you out of lockstep with the world. When you love the Lord, you're going to do things that the world will look at and think is strange. Can I tell you that the world doesn't understand what we're doing here today. Uh, your lost loved ones, your lost co-workers, your lost friends, they don't understand why you get up and spend every Sunday in the house of God. They don't understand why when you could be at the lake or you could be at the golf course or uh, you could be at the outlet malls or you could be up at the Dollywood. Instead, you're here worshiping. It does not make sense to them. But let me say that Bible Christianity has never made sense to the world. It's foreign to them. It is a strange scene. Let me say number two, it is a stirring scene. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it is hard to not be moved by the actions of this woman. 
Even if you do not understand what is transpiring, it's apparent when you see it that there's something real that's going on here. I remember hearing a preacher tell years ago about a time when he was a young man and he was uh, on a Greyhound bus taking a trip somewhere, a long journey, about eight, nine hour bus ride, and he was seated next to someone uh, that was lost and he began to witness to this man and for eight, nine hours he talked to him about the Lord and witnessed to him about his soul and when they came to the end of that ride, the man looked at this preacher and said, he said, I don't believe what you're telling me. But I do believe that you believe what you're telling me. Moral of the story being this, we can't make folks believe, but we can make them believe that we believe. We can make them know that this is no gain to us, that this is our soul, this is our life, this is the very substance that in Him we live and move and have our being. And when you look at the behavior of this woman, it is hard to not be stirred by her actions. Let me say, you can't force anyone to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to come to Him of their own choice and by faith, but you can live in such a way that there's no doubt in their mind that it's real in your life. You and you alone control that. I know sometimes I'm going to get off on a tangent here. I'll chase this rabbit, but I'll trap it and kill it. I promise. Uh, it's easy sometimes to get discouraged about loved ones and friends and family members that are lost. We feel helpless. We say, yeah, I've heard people say to a preacher, I just don't know what to do to make them believe. I don't know what to do to change their mind. I don't know what to do to reach them. And can I just say this? It's a double-edged sword. I'm going to discourage and encourage you. I'm going to discourage you by saying this. There's no way you can force them. Even if you could force them, God wouldn't want you to force them. He wants folks to come to Him of their own choice by faith. But let me encourage you by saying this. You can live in such a way that they know that it's real to you. It was a stirring scene. But then I would say this. When I read this passage, I'm reminded it is a significant scene. So why do you say that, preacher? Well, number one, because it's in our Bible. Do you understand there's far more that the Lord did that's not in your Bible than what is in your Bible? Uh, the book of John says that if the whole tale were told, that the world would not contain the book it would take to tell it. And when we think about the earthly ministry of our Lord, even though when we read the gospel record, it is uh, pretty much all that we have of record of his life. There, are, And the reason I say pretty much is there are some little snippets in the Pauline epistles and, and in the book of Acts, little phrases. But for the most part, all that we know of our Lord's ministry in the Bible is contained there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And sometimes we get the idea that that's all that happened. No, friend, uh, that is just a, a small drop in the bucket of what happened. That is but a sliver of what our Lord did in that three and a half years years of public ministry of his life. And so when we find something in our Bible, we ought to be reminded that God has chosen in a magnitude of stories and records and miracles he could have told, he has chosen, the Holy Ghost has put a magnifying glass on that passage and said, hey, pay attention to what happens here. It's significant what happens. It wouldn't be in our Bible if it was not. And certainly we could even suggest that the the volume of passages that are given here uh, dictate to us that this is something that God really wants us to pay attention to. So what is it that we are to learn passage? What is it that God desires to show us? Well, I think it's summed up down in verse 47. We already touched on it. But why does this strange and stirring and significant passage take place? What is it that God wants us to notice? Verse 47, the Lord says this, Wherefore I say unto thee, you say, Preacher, what could explain this woman's actions? What could, what, could, what could explain why she behaved this way? The Lord said this was the reason. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. 
I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. If you really knowed what you really owed. If you really had a clue just how deep your sin was. You see, the thing that made this woman different in her behavior, the reality is, though uh, Simon undoubtedly was a man that was more outwardly moral than her, it took just as much of the blood of Christ to forgive Simon as it took to forgive her. Uh, This woman was not somebody we presume anyway. She is called a great sinner. We presume she was not raised with a biblical background. She was not raised with a moral home. If she was, she no doubt departed from it early in her life. The implication being of this woman, not just that she is a sinner in the -the run-of-the-mill way, but that she lived a life of immorality and of wickedness and depravity. But the real difference between Simon and this woman, it's not that he's a Pharisee and that she is a rebel. It's not that he is a moral man and that she is a marred woman. The real difference between these two individuals is this woman still knew what God had done when He saved her. And I would say in Bible Christianity, one of the most activating and meaningful and powerful truths that you will ever grasp and hold on to is to remember what it took for God to save you and how deep down you were when He saved your soul. I want you to notice three simple thoughts this morning and we'll be done. Number one, I want you to notice the substance of this truth. Now, the Lord, to drive home this reality, He tells a short parable. That parable goes this way, verse 41. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Of our Lord's parables, this is one of the more concise and succinct. It really is just given to illustrate almost a singular truth that uh, our love and devotion for the Lord is in direct proportion and correlation to our awareness of the great debt that we owed Him. Remember, parables are given for a dual purpose. It's given to conceal truth from those that have no desire to hear it and to reveal truth to those that have a desire to hear it. And so for our Lord to tell this parable at this time in history creditor and a debtor, uh, Simon would have been keenly aware of the significance of this statement. What is it that he's wanting to emphasize three things? Notice what it says in verse number 41. It says, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. Now, we don't have to wonder who it is that's going to love him most, and we don't have to wonder who it is that he is corresponding the individuals to can tell from the context here that Simon is supposed to be the individual that owed 50 and that this woman is supposed to be the individual that owed 500 in the parable. What is the Lord trying to emphasize? Let me say number one, He's emphasizing the vastness of her death. You know, it's funny how we can reframe and redefine sin. I've always found my flesh is pretty hard on your sin, but pretty easy on my sin. I found that my flesh really don't have no problem at all with the things that I do. But it gets awful riled up when it sees the misbehavior and the disobedience of other people. You know that is by design. That has to do with the pride 
the human heart. It's amazing how we can redefine things, how we can spin things. I know we're awful critical uh, about lying politicians and lying media, and I don't like lying politicians or lying media any better than you do, but can I say that the greatest liar in your life uh, does not come on cable news. He doesn't stand up behind a a, a podium. He he doesn't wear a a little American flag pin on his lapel. Uh, The greatest liar in your life is the one that looks back at you every morning in the mirror. You do far more lying to yourself than anybody in your life has ever done to you. And the chiefest of all the lies that you'll be told by your flesh is that your sin somehow smelled better than everybody else's sin. That somehow your sin wasn't as deep, wasn't as bad. But notice what the Bible says, 500 pence. This was an inestimable sum at this time in history. This would have been far more than even a year's wages. It was something that this woman, in her uh, depressed, uh, in her uh, inability, in her in her poverty, would have had no means to be able to repay. But even to suggest it in terms of, of 500 pence does not even come close to touching the magnitude of your sin debt and my sin. So, preacher, how bad was my sin? Bad enough to send you to hell? Preacher, how bad was my sin? Bad enough to turn the face of God on Calvary? Preacher, how bad? My sin wasn't that bad, preacher. You don't know. I was raised in church. I was raised in, hey, listen, I can tell you stories about folks raised in church. I don't know if that helps you or hurts you. Somebody say amen. I went to a Christian school now. I mean, I I was raised around people that was raised in church. There's some of them knew the Lord and loved the Lord, and some of them as wicked as the walls of hell. Uh, It didn't matter that they had been raised in church. It didn't matter they had been raised around the gospel. I don't say that to discourage a young family, but just to say this, uh, that you can have all the God on the outside of your kids you want, but if you don't get God on the inside of your kids, it ain't going to make no difference in their life. People say, well, preacher, I was raised around good preaching. I was raised. You don't know my pedigree. Christians don't have a pedigree. They've got a heritage. You say, what's the difference? Well, the heritage don't do nothing for you unless it changes you. The pedigree is suggesting there's something good about your blood. Can I tell you, there ain't nothing good about your blood and my blood. Our very attempts at righteousness were but as filthy rags in the eyes of God. I'm not talking about your worst 20 seconds. I'm talking about your best 20 seconds. We're vile in the eyes of God. And we just sometimes lose sight of how big our sin debt was. The fact is, your sin was dark enough to blot out the sun. It was uh, it, it was uh, deep enough and big enough to uh, call God from His throne to have to deal with it and reconcile it. That's your sin. That's my sin. Notice, number one, it was personally vast. It says that he owed 500 pence to this woman. That was an unimaginable sum. Can I say that? Try as you may, you'd never tally your sin debt. Uh, that's why this notion that a person gets saved has to remember every sin they've committed and confess it. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Because the reality is you could never remember all the sins that you've committed. It's not your sins you're confessing to God. It's your sin, your sin nature, your lost condition. Uh, you say, but preacher, what if I've got sins in my life? Well, go ahead and get them under the blood too. Amen. But I'm saying it is not the cataloging of all the individual sins that you have committed because that would be an impossibility. Fact is, I can't remember what I did last week. I don't just mean sins. I mean, all of last week is a total blank to me. Some of y'all don't even know how you got here this morning. You just looked around and said, you don't know what happened. And we're going to imagine we could think up and dream up and, and remember every single sin we've ever committed. No, the truth is, your sin debt is far vaster. People that believe they can atone for their sin through good works, how are you even going to remember how many sins you've committed to be able to atone for it? And somebody show me, I, I, listen, I, I've checked the back of the notebook. I can't find a conversion chart for good works to sins. 
And I've looked in my Bible and can't find it either. The fact that there is, it was a personally vast sum. But then I would say this, it was a comparatively vast sum. Uh, notice what it says. It says one had 500 pence, owed 500, the other 50. You know, I found this. I remember hearing a fellow tell a story one time that it was a friend of mine. He, he was a, he was a man of proportions. That means he's fat. And, um, he was talking about how he had gotten in that condition. And he said that, that the way that, that, and I'm sure there's a lot that contributed to it, but he said one of the things that he noticed in his life, he said he'd go to this, these buffets. You know what a buffet is, right? Big, ugly, fat folks eating together, right? He went to a buffet and he would, when it, when it was time to go back for a plate, he'd have them second thoughts. You know how we all have them second, well, some of y'all probably have them second thoughts and, and think, well, should I go back? Should I not? I've only ate 35 chicken wings. I mean, <laughs> and uh, he would, he said he would always look around and he always saw someone fatter than him going to the buffet. And he would always say to himself, well, at least I'm not like that person. Isn't that interesting? He didn't notice the skinny fella still sitting in his seat picking at his salad. He noticed the big old fat fella headed back to get that 38th chicken wing. Isn't it funny how we do in our sin debt? You know, we can always find somebody worse than us. But you know, you can probably always find someone better than you too. It really comes down, and I'm not suggesting that there's anything elastic or relative about our lost condition. A man that's lost is lost and he needs to be born again. doesn't matter if he is what society would call a moral man. doesn't matter if he's what the church would call a moral man or not. If he's lost, he needs to be saved. He needs to be born again. But I would say that it is absolutely true that there are some men that are great sinners and some men that are sinners. And we always seem to look around and find people that are in worse shape than us instead of looking. But can I tell you this? For every person that you find in worse shape than you were, you could also find people in better shape than you were. The fact is, your sin may not seem like much to you, but there's somebody sitting at the table looking at you and deciding to go back and get a second plate. There's somebody looking at your life and saying, at least I'm not like them. I say this so you're not puffed up in pride. The truth is, you can look around and find somebody worse, but you can find somebody better as well. He emphasizes the vastness of her debt. Notice number two, he emphasizes the hopelessness of her debt. It says this in verse 41, A certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had, what's this next word? Nothing to pay. He frankly forgave them both. Boy, that's an interesting thing. Now, they each owe vastly different sums, but you know, to a broke man, one dollar might well as be a million dollars. This is where the ground becomes level at the foot of the cross. You may be a more morally upright person than the guy sitting next to you, but at the end of the day, you don't have anything in terms of currency that God deals in in your good works. God has told us what the currency is of His economy, and it's faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. You can do all the good works you want to. You can get baptized a thousand times. You can join a hundred churches. And none of that impresses God. It's not the currency that God deals in. It's interesting. I've been, uh, there's, there's an item I've been looking at on the eBay, and, cause I'm old school. eBay. <laughs> Some of y'all went, what's eBay? <laughs> And uh, I, I was looking at this item. This item is being sold by a Canadian. And I had second thoughts about ordering it, but but it's being sold by a Canadian. And so they have it listed on eBay in Canadian dollars. 
something like $34.99. But then eBay converts it to American dollars to show me a price. So I see in, in little faint lines, you know, $34.99 Canadian. But, but then it'll say in big bold letters, it's like $27 something dollars. You know, can I tell you something about how bad we're in in our society right now? I have watched that thing get more expensive in American dollars over the past week. You know what that means, right? It ain't getting more expensive. Our dollar's getting cheaper. And I've watched this thing when the conversion takes place, and our, our dollar just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. That's terrifying to be able to see. But the reality is this. We come to God with our good works, and we say, Now, Lord, this is worth a lot to me. But the reality is it ain't worth nothing to God. When you convert it into God's currency, there's only one currency He considers. And it's not your good works. It's not your promises to reform. It's not your commitment to do better. It's not your baptism. It's not your church membership. It's not your pedigree. It's not that your daddy was a preacher or your granddaddy was a deacon or your mama was a praying woman or your grandmama taught you Jesus loves me. None of that matters in the eyes of God. There's one thing and one thing only that matters. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. fact is, neither one of them could pay their sin debt. And you may look around and say, well, preacher, at least I'm not as bad as them. Yeah, well, you're as broke as them. So you might as well be as bad as them. They had nothing to pay. And when a sinner comes to Christ, I mean, the songwriter said it right, in my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We have nothing to pay God. You understand that God doesn't benefit one iota from saving us. And that's why it's by grace. God's not sitting up in heaven trying to meet His quota of sinners to save so He can keep His title as God. He's God whether He ever saved a sinner or didn't. Uh, but He saves you by His grace because you have nothing to purchase it yourself. One of the greatest pieces, and we sort of mentioned this uh, at the beginning of the service when we was testifying about Karen, what a glorious thing it is to realize that we can't lose our salvation. And you know, that's predicated on this one simple reality and truth. I did not procure my salvation, so I cannot forfeit my salvation. There's nothing I did to earn it. I simply accepted it. God gave it to me. I did not pay the price for it. I did not earn it. I did not make God a bunch of promises that caused Him to trust me with it. He did this by His grace and His grace alone. Why? Because I was totally hopeless and had no means to pay. I see the hopelessness of her debt, but then I see the forgiveness of her debt. I like this. It says, He frankly forgave them both. You know what the word frankly means? Anytime you go to do any kind of financial transaction, one of these days we have to be, one of these things we have to be mindful of these days is what they call the fine print. One of the most terrifying components of our society is for the past 10 years, every time we've done anything online, we've accepted terms and agreements. I don't know if you're aware of this, Google might own your child. Prove me wrong. Prove to me that you don't know that. I don't know it. You don't either. You know why? Because we just accept those terms and agreements. And oftentimes when you sign a contract of any kind, there'll be buried all this legalese, all this what we call fine print. And what they're doing is they're burying the things that would cause you to not sign that contract. If you read them and understood them, you'd put the pen down. But they write it real small and kind of in, in faded font. And, and, and they're hoping you'll just say, well, I don't have time for all that. I'm just going to sign it over. See, they are deceitfully entering into a contract with you. Can I tell you what God did when He saved you? He frankly forgave you. There's no fine print to His offer of salvation. 
It's the reason a little child can come to Christ. When I was saved, I was 10 years old. Man, I didn't know everything God did for me when I got born again. I sure enough didn't realize all the things that God had to do to save me. I didn't realize the depth of my salvation, the height of my salvation. Let me tell you what I knew. As a 10-year-old boy, I knew I was on my way to hell and that Jesus would save me if I'd ask Him to forgive me. And I asked Him and He forgave me. There's no fine print to it. I just... It was that simple. Now, let me tell you something. There ain't no fine print, but there's sure enough a lot of precious print that's now detailed to me all the great and glorious and wonderful things. But listen, he didn't have to put it as fine print because those things are not a detriment. They're a blessing to us. It is as simple as God coming and saying, if you'll place your faith in Christ, turn from depending on yourself and depend on the Savior, He'll forgive you, He'll save you. And then for the rest of your life, you're going to read this precious bold print that's going to tell you all He did for you. But you'll never come across anything that will make you say, you know, I wouldn't have signed up for it had I known. I've heard preachers say that before. And i got to tell you, uh, certainly there are things uh, in the Christian walk and Christian experience that I would not have felt ready for had I realized those things when I got born again. But let me just lift my hand to heaven and say, I don't regret a day of being saved. Not a day of it. Not a, not an hour, not a minute, not a second. I don't regret any of it. I'm glad I got born again. I see the forgiveness of her debt. So we see the substance of this truth. Number two, we see the influence of this truth. What did this do? When she knew this, what did this produce in her life? Well, notice what it says in verse 37. It says, Behold a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. You know what I find here? I find when a person really knows, when they really understand what they owed to God, what he did when he saved them, I find that three truths are present in their life. Number one, when they really know it, no price is too high. The thing that she brings to the Lord is many times over what this woman would be able in years to be able to procure. I don't know how she uh, got possession of this box. It's almost unimaginable that it could have, but maybe it was left to her. Maybe it was gifted to her. Maybe she happened upon it. Or maybe she had labored and worked for years and, and finally been able to bring it together. But when she comes to the Lord, she doesn't come, listen, she doesn't come to brag about it. She comes to break it. What's she saying by that? I don't know about you, and maybe I just am not up on the craftsmanship of, uh, of, of alabaster boxes in Bible times, but I'm suggesting this. Probably something this expensive had some means to open it without breaking it. She broke it out of significance, out of meaning. Why did she do that? She was saying to the Lord, before you, this is nothing. I can take it and spend all and be spent and break it and pour it out upon your very feet. And it will have been a worthy use of that money. I found that the people that nickel and dime God have generally forgotten just how steep of a price he paid for their soul. Now, we could talk about giving. We could talk about tithing. But let me go a step beyond that and say this. Uh, All of the Christian life is God laying claim upon things that he bought at Calvary. When God comes to you and says, I want you to pray more, he's saying that because he bought and paid for you. When he comes to you and says, I want you to put this out of your life, it's damaging you. He has a right to say that because he bought and paid for you at Calvary. And when we lose sight of what a great, glorious, grand price he paid, the very blood of his precious son, we all of a sudden begin to balk at the things that God asks of us. I'm ashamed to say it, but there's been times that my flesh has whispered into my ear and said, that's a bridge too far. 
That's too much for God to ask. Can I tell you, the only time we countenance that thought is when we forget just how far He went for us. When you really know what you owe, no price is too high. I would say this, number two, not only is no price too high, but no place is too low. This woman comes in and she breaks this alabaster box and normally, and the Lord alludes to this, you would take ointment like that and pour it over someone's head. But she didn't even feel worthy to look him in the eye. She just falls at his feet and begins to weep and take her hair. The Bible says that a woman's hair is her glory. Begins to wipe his feet with her hair and wash them with her tears and, and, and anoint the feet with ointment. And there she is the whole time, can I just say it this way, making a fool of herself in the world's terms, on her face at the feet of Jesus. She didn't think twice about it. She didn't think anything was strange about this. She felt as though she was not just in a proper place, she was in a privileged place. You know why? Because she knew who she was. Let me tell you, when we forget who we are, we start to... It's amazing. We don't forget who we used to be, and that makes us more lowly. When we forget what we used to be, that always makes us more prideful. It's amazing. Listen, I preach funerals for, you know, years and years and years. It's unfortunately a part of pastoring. You wouldn't believe how sanctified people get once they die. Some of these people, I knew them when they was living. And then you read that obituary and you're like, who is this person? And listen, the family's paying for it word by word. They can write anything they want. It ain't my business. But I'm saying, isn't it always funny how we sanctify the memory of people in their absence? Let me say that oftentimes in the absence of a clear comprehension of who we used to be, that man that died when we came to Christ, we forget all of a sudden he starts to look pretty good to us. And we begin to boast in him and and trust in him and think much of him. And then once we do that, now when God demands things of us, we say, whoa, now wait a minute, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who you are? A sinner broken on your way to hell? Not a thing about you worth even looking at or spitting on. And the blessed, darling Son of God came from glory and suffered and died for your sins. Don't you know who you are? Or have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? I find that no place is too low. But then I would say this, no praise is too much. This is an act of worship that she is committing. She is in her weeping. She's giving praise unto him. And by her actions, she is saying that he is... You remember what worship is? It is declaring His worthiness. That He's worthy of all that we are and all that we have. And her actions were her visible, carried out expression of her feelings of His worthiness. I find this, when we remember who we used to be, you know when we get embarrassed, you know it takes pride to get embarrassed. One of my greatest qualities is it's impossible to embarrass me. I just have no shame. That's not true and please don't try. But, uh, you know, the ability to get embarrassed is wrapped up in pride that we feel. We get embarrassed because we say, well, I don't want to be looked upon or thought in that way. Now, it's perfectly appropriate to not want to be embarrassed in certain situations and over certain circumstances. I'm not suggesting that fear of embarrassment is somehow a carnal quality. But I'm saying when it comes to the matter of praise, we have no right to embarrassment. How could we ever... Ever look at our Lord and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm just too embarrassed to tell others what you did for me. This woman gave no thought for what people might think of her. I suspect if you were to ask this woman and say, well, now don't you know people are going to think this and people are going to think that, she'd probably say, be careful what people think. I'm at the feet of Jesus. I don't care what they think. I care what he thinks. 
You say, preacher, I want to be that type of person. Well, just remember what you owed, and it'll produce that. But then I think about Simon here, and I, I'm not going to dwell on it. I know we need to close, but I, I think about Simon and the difference in his life. I mean, this whole parable is structured in such a way to strike a contrast between this woman, this sinner, and Simon, this Pharisee. I think in her we have a picture of someone who knows what she owed. She's aware of how deep was her sin debt, how glorious was her deliverance. But in Simon, I think we have a picture of someone who's lost sight of that. So we see not only the substance of this truth, the influence of this truth, but in Simon we see the absence of this truth. What happens in a person's life when they forget this? I notice three things. Look at verse 39 with me. The Bible says, Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, now let me just pause there and say this. If Simon had been aware of, of how God had saved him, how deep he was in his sin debt, and I believe Simon was a saved man. You say, preacher, how could you believe that? Because in the parable that the Lord tells, he's the one that is forgiven as well. I believe he's a man. I believe he wanted the Lord at his house because he was a true believer in the God of Israel. I think he had placed his faith in it. But he had lost sight of that. Now, here's how it should have gone. It should, it should have, if it had gone the way we wish it went, it should have said this. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he rejoiced and praised the Lord and joined right in worshiping. That's how we wish it went. That's not what it says. It says he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touched him, for she is a sinner. You know what I found? When we lose sight of this, it makes us very critical in our spirit. Now let me tell you this. There is a place for critical thinking and criticism. God instructs us to be critical in the sense of scrutinizing things. The righteous man judgeth all things. But when we speak of critical in this context, what we mean is a sour, bitter, cynical spirit. And Simon, boy, if there was ever somebody that exemplified it, it was him. Number one, he is critical of the Savior. Isn't it interesting, before he ever says anything about her, and he does not even view this as a reflection on her, he actually doesn't even say anything about her other than something she already knew, that she was a sinner. But when he sees this happening, what does he do? He criticizes the Savior. He says, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him. You know, I find when we forget what all God did for us, all of a sudden we get real critical about what God's doing in our life. We start getting to think that we have a better plan, a better process, a better thought concept of, of what needs to take place in our life. I find that in times in my life when I'm questioning God and it's a human thing to do, it is a natural thing to do. It is not a spiritual thing to do, but it is a natural thing to do. And we all deal with our flesh. But I find the remedy is to go back to Calvary and remember just how perfectly God procured my salvation. The great testimony to the providence and wisdom of God is what he did in sending his son to the cross of Calvary to procure salvation for you and for me. And I find when I lose sight of that, all of a sudden, I, I, never, I never look at it and say, well, God's plan doesn't work, so there's no way. I always seem to say, well, God's plan doesn't work, and I think I've got a better one. But when I'm reminded of where my plan got me, when I'm reminded of where my way of thinking got me, when I'm reminded of how, how helpless I was, I can't help but look at God and trust Him. It made Him critical of the Savior and of this sinner. He looked and said, how dare she? She's a sinner. She has no place near the Savior. I about shouted when we was reading our text. 
I love what it says. This man, if he were a prophet, uh, would have known what, who and what manner of woman this is that touched him. Yeah, maybe if he was a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. He's the blessed Son of God. And he knew exactly who this woman was. He came to save women like her and men like that as well. In other words, he began to be cynical and critical. And I find in, in our life, and we've never struggled with this at our church, and, and, and I praise the Lord. It's of the Lord's mercies that this is the case. But there's a lot of places you go into that if, if somebody wanted to give praise to God, everybody just start getting nervous. There's churches you could go into that if the singing was getting on and somebody shouted or somebody said amen or somebody said bless the Lord, all of a sudden uh, the, the, uh, people start gathering up the kids and heading for the nursery. Let me say it ought not be a strange thing that we give praise to Him. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let me tell you something. I understand people can do things in the flesh and they can do them for show. I'm not saying there's no premise and no circumstance in which somebody could be offering praise under a false pretense. But when somebody in a genuine heart with a sincere spirit is wanting to praise the Lord, if that bothers us, we're the wrong ones that ain't where we need to be. Not them. I see it makes us critical. Number two, let me say it makes us careless. Remember what the Lord says here in verse 44. He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? By the way, that's what the Lord thinks of thing. He doesn't say, Simon, you're right. When you get this woman out of here, he says, Simon, you need to pay attention to how this woman worships me. He says, I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil, it's not anointed, hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Everything that Simon neglected to do would have been things that would have been common practice when you are welcomed into your home an honored guest. Even the lowliest of people would have been given water to wash their feet with. It would have been a common custom at this time to give a, a, a uh, moderate, uh, appropriate kiss on the cheek to someone that entered into their home. And for somebody that you wanted to revere, it was not uncommon to take oil and to anoint their head to try to drive the dust and the smell of travel away. But you know, Simon didn't do any of these things. And what's worse than him not doing any of these things, he didn't see anything wrong with not doing any of these things. Can I tell you, it bothers me when I see people not doing for the Lord what He deserves. But it bothers me any, even more to see people not bothered by them not doing the things that the Lord deserved. Hey, listen, when you're ice cold, God can do something with you. When you're on fire for the Lord, the Lord ain't got to do anything beyond just helping you and encouraging you. But when you're lukewarm, you're beyond help. And the thing that is most bothersome about Bible Christianity today, that people say, well, preacher, you know, Christianity, it's just, it's broken. There's problems in it. There's flaws in, in people's behavior. And you see problems in churches. Can I tell you something? Everywhere there's people, there's problems. If you went back to the early New Testament, you understand that pretty much all of the Pauline epistles, uh, epistles is, is Paul trying to straighten out problems in New Testament churches. It ain't never been that the church has been without her problem. But only now does it not bother us anymore. You know what's happened? We forgot who and what we were, and it's made us careless. It's, it's not just that we don't do for him what he deserves. We don't even care that we don't do for him what he deserves. Makes us careless. There's one final one. Turn over to Matthew 18. I want to read this and say a word about it and be done this morning. And I know you want that too. 
Matthew chapter 18. Our Lord tells a different parable at a different time in His ministry. But it speaks to this exact issue. There was a time when Peter came to Him and uh, over the matter of forgiveness. And verse 21 says that Peter said this to Him, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven like unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. When he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. Before as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and paid to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, and loosed him, and forgave him the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on my fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. You know what I find? When we forget what he did for us, it makes us cruel. The parable here that our Lord tells is simple. It's the picture of someone who has been forgiven, but cannot find it to forgive. There's an interesting thought that occurred to me. I don't know how you do your books and, and balance your checkbook, but if I owe a debt, I don't consider the money. And it, it can even be a monthly payment that you make every month. But when I figure out my, my uh, budget for the month, I, I don't look at it and discount and dismiss the debts that I owe. Whether I look at it and before I ever look around and say, well, now this is how much money we have. What do we want to do with it? Here's what I do. I subtract those debts that I owe and then that gives me the net that I can budget from. In other words, here is the basic equation that we're doing. We're looking at it and saying this. I can't spend this money. It doesn't belong to me because I owe it to them. It's not my money to spend because I owe it to them. Now, how is it that we can look at someone and say, you know, preacher, I just can't find it to forgive them because they owe me this debt. They did me this wrong. Don't you know that on Calvary, Christ bought out all your debts? When somebody, and this is the basic fundamental biblical concept of, of forgiving others in Christ's stead for the sake of Christ, you don't have a right to grievances because Christ bought them all out. But preacher, they owe me 50, they owe me 100, they owe me 200. Yeah, and every bit of that has already been bought by Christ when He forgave you your million. He bought them out. They belong to Him. Now that's not to, I'm not saying it to bully or berate you about feeling hurt or feeling offended, and that's natural to feel. But I'm saying at a certain point, we have to reconcile people's grievances against us. And if we're not careful, when we forget about what God did for us, we'll start to think we have some right and some claim to sit around in victimhood, feeling aggrieved and feeling as though we've been transgressed against. I tell you, when you got born again, you gave up that mantle of victimhood. It don't belong to you anymore. You're robed in the righteousness of Christ and you're more than a conqueror through Him that loved you. Uh, far be Boy, I'm just going to say that again. 
I mean, far be it from us to walk around with head hung low, uh, complaining about how the world's done us. How do you think they did your Savior? Uh, who are we to claim that we're somebody that even should be noticed and paid attention to if we've been done wrong? The reality is this. We were broke, dead, on our way to hell before He forgave us. And we have no right to stand around and cloak and robe ourselves in victimhood and pretend as though somehow we are uh, more worthy of greater things than how the world has treated us and what the world has given us. When you got born again, you got given more than you ever could have hoped to have. And the Lord bought out all your debts. Say, preacher, what do I do now? Well, whenever somebody needs to be forgiven, you go to them and say, hey, listen, your beef is not with me. My beef is not with you. And if the Lord can forgive you, I can forgive you. He's the one that you owe the debt to. Can I tell you this? When they go to the Lord, He forgives them. Just like He forgave you. And therein we find forgiveness. But hey, listen, uh, when we forget that, it makes us a cruel individual. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like Simon, man. I want to be like this sinner. I want to be somebody who never loses sight of what the Lord did for me. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. Maybe you just want to come thank Him. It would not be uncommon for you to have to say with your heart and spirit, even though I knew it academically, I somehow have forgot it practically. Even though I, I knew it to be true that He has saved me and all that He's done for me, I somehow had lost sight of just how deep that debt was. And I just want to thank Him for what He's done. Father, bless this invitation. I pray it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.